Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. When Scott Wallace joined a Brazilian expedition in 2002, seeking an uncontacted tribe, the terms were pretty clear. They could study them, they could track them, but above all else, they could not contact them. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Scott Wallace talks about this expedition into the Amazon to find the Arrow people. Wallace is a writer and photojournalist who covered a lot of different things in his career, including the wars in El Salvador and Nicaragua for CBS and The Guardian in the 1980s. And since then, he's written extensively for National Geographic. His book, The Unconquered, In Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes, tells this story of his expedition. Wallace's work about the Amazon has also recently appeared in the New York Times. Scott Wallace, thanks for coming in to talk to me today. My pleasure. So in your book, you start the story in the summer of 2002, and you're living in New York after having spent months in the Amazon reporting on environmental devastation. It sounded to me like you were you were thinking like, wow, I haven't been back for a while. Uh, I haven't seen my my sons. I'm living in this apartment. And then you get a call. I was wondering if you could take us back to that. Sure. So I had been in Brazil for a couple of months and um, was really eager to get back to the States after that. I found a sublet on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I was um, getting involved in a, I was involved with a, a woman. I'd gone through a divorce I hadn't seen much of my kids, and I was really looking forward to just spending a chill summer in New York, mm-hmm. you know, going out to Long Island, going up to the Adirondacks with my boys. And then I got this call from National Geographic, and I had been in a conversation, an ongoing kind of back and forth with an editor there about doing a story for the magazine about illegal logging mm-hmm. in Brazil. And that's, that's, had you been covering that, you had just come back from Yeah, the I had been covering that, but I had been shooting um, video piece for geographic television, and I hadn't broken into the magazine. Mm-hmm. And so I got, uh, actually it was an email from the editor that I had been like trying to pitch this story to for the magazine, and he it said, Scott, please call me ASAP, mm-hmm. which I did. And uh, he said, "Are you? Uh, do you know somebody named Sidney Pozuelo? Have you ever heard of him?" And I said, "Sure, yeah." And he said, um, 
are you interested in going back to Brazil to write a profile about him? Despite the fact that I just come back to the States, the opportunity to write for the Geographic I never had before. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, and, and you had met Sidney Pozuelo. I had met Pozuelo like 10 years before at the Earth Summit in Rio. And, and could you tell us a little bit about him? He's a pretty interesting guy. Sidney Pozuelo is a fascinating character. And at the time when I interviewed him in Brazil, in, sorry, in Rio, in 2002 during the Earth Summit, he was the head of FUNAI, the National Indian Foundation, which is Brazil's indigenous affairs agency. Mm -hmm. And he had just recently completed the demarcation or delimiting of the Yanomami indigenous territory, which is a huge sprawling territory on the border of Venezuela, harboring several thousand Yanomami Indians mm -hmm. and expelling miners and coordinating a big operation involving the police and the army to expel thousands of gold prospectors mm -hmm. in creating that territory. And back in 92, that's basically what we spoke about. Mm -hmm. Ever since then, fr from that point onward, I knew that Pozuelo ran these expeditions into the Amazon, into remote locations to track um, isolated tribes. And I, it had always been a dream of mine from that point on. You know, maybe someday I'll have the chance to do that with him. Mm. And it turned out that the Geographic, you know, 10 years later asked me if I was available to head off on an expedition with Pozuelo. So Pozuelo is not only an interesting guy in the type of work he does, but... He's also interest, interesting in terms of what he sees as a, an expedition to find these kinds of, of uh, uncontacted people. Could you talk about what his work was like and what his agenda was in going with you up the Amazon to find the Flechero? Am I saying that correctly? The Flechero, the, yeah. the arrow people, yeah. So Pozuelo would eventually become the head of an elite unit inside of FUNAI, the Indigenous Affairs Agency, a unit called the Department of Isolated Indians. And that unit, which he founded also, is in charge of documenting the presence of, establishing the existence of the most isolated, unknown, in many cases uncontacted tribes in Brazil in order to protect their lands hmm and to get legal protection for the land. And in order to do that, to document with, you know, thorough evidence that the tribe is there, requires a boots-on-the-ground expedition under the jungle canopy. Aerial surveillance doesn't... Aerial surveillance might reveal the locations of, of huts, which are seasonal anyway. Rarely does one of these tribes stay in the same place for mm -hmm. very long. They're nomadic or semi-nomadic. But the, those aerial observations mm -hmm. will not tell you the extent of a tribe's wanderings or like their economic frontiers. Mm -hmm. And so only a boots-on-the-ground expedition under the jungle canopy will reveal those kinds of secrets. And that's crucial information because you need to protect the full extent of a tribe's land area. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't want to cut it in half or protect only part of it because they'll continue using the other part, but then they're going to come into contact with 
potentially deadly ways with you know uh, gold prospectors or yeah. my, or whomever. So, so yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the uncontacted part of this. Yeah, Pozuelo is committed to these expeditions to find to uh, establish reconnaissance about these uncontacted tribes, and yet extremely important that they not be contacted. Why? What's the issue? Yeah. So that's the paradox of these expeditions, because you go in, on the one hand, seeking out the tribe to confirm its presence, on the one hand, while trying to avoid the group on the other. It makes kind of a, for a strange and can be a dangerous, you know, quixotic sort of enterprise. The main reason for avoiding contact is because these groups, these tribes, and there may be, there are several dozen of them in the Amazon today, maybe as many as a hundred still out there in the deepest uh, recesses of the jungle. They do not have immunity to the germs that we carry. Mm -hmm. The pathogens that evolved on the Eurasian landmass over millennia, you know, flu, measles, um, even the common cold can mm-hmm. be um, a contagion with the, with deadly consequences for these tribes. They are as vulnerable to those germs today as the first uh, indigenous people encountered by Columbus yeah. more than 500 years ago. Yeah. And it seems to me that it's also, you said it's kind of quixotic this way that you're, you're on this expedition to find people, but actually not entirely to find them, to not make contact. And I thought, does that put you in a tricky position as a journalist working for National Geographic? I mean, ultimately, his goals in terms of finding these people and and figuring out where their area is, is slightly different than yours, which is to bring back a narrative of this people. Yeah, that's that's correct. So, you know, there's a part of me probably going off on an expedition. So when the call came and I agreed to take this assignment for the geographic, Pozuelo was just heading out on an open-ended expedition into one of the most unexplored redoubts of the Amazon, an area called the Javari Valley in far western Brazil, specifically to enter into um, an unexplored region on the southern flank of Mm -hmm. this huge sprawling territory um, where this group, the Flecheros or Arrow people, were believed to exist Mm -hmm. and wander. And the Arrow people, in fact, so little was known, or and even today so little is known about this group that we only know them as the Flecheros, the Arrow people. We don't know what they call themselves. There's Hmm. never been peaceful contact with the outside world. The only dialogue that's really ever been, you know, established with the outside world is one of flying bullets in one direction and flying arrows in the other. So what was it like? What is the Javare Valley like? There are other groups that are there as well. And ethnographers have been to the valley to describe and study various peoples, but they hadn't found the Flecheros. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what what happened to you there. What was it like? Yeah. So there are other uncontacted and isolated groups in the Javari. And um, in fact, the Flecheros or arrow people, they're called that because they are deft archers and they use arrows and they've always been 
not, they have a reputation for repelling intruders into their territory with arrows. Mm -hmm. And uh, but on the other side of the river that we were going up at the beginning of our expedition, we began on and on boats, a flotilla of boats heading up river, a kind of a Lewis and Clark style expedition, thirty four men. Uh, 20 uh, indigenous people from three different tribes, another 10 like mixed-blooded frontiersmen. Mm -hmm. um, and we began on the river and eventually left the boats behind and began this overland trek into the land of the Arrow people. But as we were going up the river, the Itakwai River, which is a tributary of a tributary of the Amazon, on the um, right side as we were heading up river were another group of uncontacted indigenous people, the Karubo, mm -hmm. um, who use clubs and uh, who are known as the headbashers because they have repelled intruders into their territory by smashing people, unsuspecting people's heads in mm -hmm. with these clubs. The arrow people, uh, you know, have arrows. So they're on the left side of the river as we're going upriver. And the Karubo, the headbashers, are on the other side of the river. And we're staying in the middle. And some of the Karubo you enlist to help you. No, not Karubo. Not the Karubo. We, no, we had um, – the Karubo are still in a very um, early stage of acculturation. Some of the Karubo, some are completely uncontacted still. There's a small group that's been contacted, but we didn't take them with us. We took the Matisse, Machis, kind of in Brazilian Portuguese, the Machis – the Marubo and Kanamari. You know, you you mentioned this idea of acculturation uh, and that they were at the early stages of it. It brought to my mind when I was reading your book those scenes in the original Star Trek where they're uh, you know on some foreign planet with people who are at a you know not as technologically advanced, and Kirk will say to Spock, "Well, you know, the Prime Directive says we you know cannot interfere." with this society and then subsequently the rest of the episode is them interfering with <laughs> society but it raised some kind of interesting questions in my mind as i was reading it because there's an attempt as you said earlier to protect these people from forces that might kill them yes like disease as and well violence. as and and the predatory violence of of gold miners and loggers and other people at the same time we don't want to be paternalistic about people either. And if people want to, you know, join um, Western culture or trade and things like that, like, I guess what I'm, the question I'm asking is how do you mediate between those two things, uh, trying to protect people on one hand and at the same time give people the freedom to be their own agents in deciding, you know, contact with the outside right. world. So there are some groups today in the last couple of years, we've seen uh, in Peru, especially some groups of Mashko Piro, young men, essentially, but some women, too, with them, who have been actually seeking contact. They've come out uh -huh. to the riverbanks. Um, they've entered the villages of um, some settled uh, indigenous people who, you know, were contacted, you know, decades ago, and they live in settlements now. Uh, in the upper reaches of the Amazon. Um, so there have been some efforts, some attempts, or some overtures from some of these groups. 
whether it's desperation, whether their territory is shrinking because of illegal logging principally, but also gold prospecting. If, if their land is being encroached upon, their animals are being hunted, or their animals are fleeing the sounds of machinery, road building, there's oil exploration in certain parts of the Amazon. Or, you know, what in the case of the Mashkopito, it's not so much oil, but illegal logging has been a real problem mm -hmm. in their territory and drug trafficking. And so are they coming out because their territory is shrinking or are they finally losing their fear of the outside world and their curiosity is gaining the upper hand? It's still kind of unclear what's going on there. But in many instances, it's also clear that the tribes just regard us and I think rightly, as dangerous. They seem to know that we have germs that are deadly. Uh, in their experience, the contact with outsiders has usually been disastrous, whether it's through disease or violence. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. What There's a really interesting passage in your book where you were talking about what does the world look like to a person who has not been contacted, to the Fleshiro or these other groups. And you say what we know about them is, is that they, they do have terms for the people who live outside. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, well, you know, the, in fact, we do know instances where these tribes have evolved words for, you know, the white man that um, are onomatopoetic terms that mimic the crack of gunfire. So, you know, whereas we are calling um, this group the people of the arrow, they, they, they could rightly have been calling us the people of the gun. Mm -hmm. You know, the experience of these tribes in the Amazon and actually elsewhere in the Americas has been starting several centuries ago and even today to be on the receiving end of gunfire. And interestingly, too, you know, these tribe, you know, if you talk to some of the tribal members, they see anyone who is non-Indian as white. And so they will even call like Afro-Brazilians or Afro-Peruvians, they'll call them black white men. So interesting. After college, you moved to Central America as journalist. And you covered, uh, was it, were you, were you covering the wars in Nicaragua or what Nicaragua, was Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala. So you not only have a lot of experience in South and Central America, but you have a lot of experience basically being in extreme environments, difficult environments. And I know now you're living in Connecticut. You're a professor of journalism at University of Connecticut. That's got to be an incredibly different world to be moving back and forth between these environments in Central America and in the Amazon and then back here. Is there a, a lot of culture shock coming back? I have to say that, you know, now I don't go there for that long to lend experience like culture shock or reverse culture shock when coming back. There's, I, I, you know, you kind of develop a sort of ability to kind of switch back and forth and, and to me to be able to still work or be able to still go to the amazon and report i'm in the midst of a project for national geographic there right now and to come back here is is kind of exhilarating to have mm. 
you know, to be able to n mediate between the two worlds. But when I was in Central America in the 80s, I lived um, there in El Salvador, in Nicaragua, and Guatemala for a total of seven years. Wow. And the real hard part was trying to come back and integrate into life in the States after after that. it was That was really difficult. What was the most uh, difficult part of it? You develop an incredible camaraderie with the journalists that you work with in those kinds of conditions. And, um, you know, much like soldiers returning home from Iraq or Afghanistan today, it's you feel kind of isolated and the people don't really understand you or don't understand what you've been through and you miss your friends and you're really the kind of spiritual and social nourishment that you had in those conditions suddenly is gone and um you have to get used to a you know a, a new reality that um you're not the same person you were when you left uh, and so it's very difficult to come back and readjust after that. So in the time that after you left Central America early in your career, you've been to an enormous number of places, a lot of them really, you know, off the map, so to speak. Uh, the Pamir Mountains in Afghanistan, Yunnan province in China. As you go to these different places in the role as journalist, do you end up seeing more things that connect to the places or do you see more of the diversity of how these places are different from one another? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think, I think it's both. You, you kind of build on your previous experience that, you know, seeing the common threads that run through the societies in one place or another um, is a necessary way of kind of making sense of a new environment. Uh, but then you see the differences too. And the way you kind of operate, you learn how to operate in um, unfamiliar terrain. And that's a tremendous advantage when you're going anywhere. But it's really, you know, Asia has become for me a, a new kind of frontier that I'm really interested in. And, um, but it's, it's a very different well, obviously, it's a different place, but it's also different in the way I have to operate because in Sp in in Latin America and Spanish and Portuguese speaking countries, yeah. I can speak the language, and in in Asia, I don't. So I need to have somebody with me who can help me figure out what's going on. Can you talk about the work that you're doing in China, or is that still not published yet? Well, I mean, this past trip to China was really quite. It was, it was nice, but it was easy. I was lecturing in Shanghai and then went to the Li River Valley in uh -huh. Guangxi province on a travel assignment. You know, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to pursue, um, a story that involves my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, who claimed, uh, to have discovered a lost tribe in 1931. So this is, uh, Francis Baird, your grandfather. Yes. And his traveling companion, Jill Costly Bat. Am Correct. I pronouncing that correctly? Um, this is kind of an incredible story. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about who your grandfather was and uh, what he did. And then I'm going to ask you about how you got involved with tracking it down. So my grandfather, Francis Kennedy Baird, uh, set off in 1930 
um, left my mother behind. She was only five at the time. Uh, with his traveling companion, I kind of surmised, you know, at a certain age that she was probably like a paramour of some kind, Jill Cosley Bat. They went off to the Himalayas, and in 1931, um, several months after my mother last saw her father, they claimed to have discovered a lost tribe in the border regions of China and India. And um, I didn't know much about him growing up. As a matter of fact, he disappeared from my mother's life. She only saw him once again, like 10 years later, very briefly. Uh, he was never talked about when I was growing mm. up. Curiously, my mother kept a portrait of him on the bedroom wall, on the, on the bedroom where she and my father slept. There was a portrait of him. Uh, kind of shaggy-haired, beard, sort of studied look of, you know, hipness. <laughs> you know, it was really a, really a remarkable photo. What was his career? Why was he even in India? Well, good question what his career was, because on uh, documents that I have since turned up in the last several years since my mother died, my mother died in 2003 before the internet really mm -hmm. hit full stride and before things were digitized and put online. Um, she never knew like what had happened to him, where he died, when he died, or even if he had died, she wow. never knew. And um, so, but, you know, in uh, and shipping manifests and border crossing documents and things like that, that um, I've been able to locate some with the help of other people. He gave different descriptions of what he did for mm. a living. He called himself an explorer, an author, um, at one point an insurance salesman, various things. And how did he actually make a living is a little bit of a mystery. Wow, that's so interesting. And I've you, there's a picture in one of the, your, your articles, um, I think it's for Smithsonian, where he's with uh, his companion and... Um, He's got the, looks like he's got the pith helmet and the khakis. And I mean, he really looks like, you know, he's doing the explorer business. Yes. I'm just wondering, it's a very interesting time period too, the early 1930s. It's kind of right after the golden age of uh, polar exploration and African exploration. Are there any writings that he's left behind? I have, I have a smattering of letters. And then some newspaper articles about him. So, yeah, this is kind of like the Edwardian period, interwar period, when this kind of globe is shrinking. It's interesting because it's still, you know, ocean liners were still the way of the, of international travel. He and Jill set off from the docks of New York on a ocean liner, went on to India to Calcutta, and, um, and there his journey northward began. And through some letters that my mother, the only inheritance that my mother ever um, received from him was a tiny, a, a small stationary, a, kind of like a box you'd put stationary in. And she had a number of letters and photographs from him in that box, mostly from this journey to India that she kept. And she showed them to me once, probably when I was around 15. And 
shortly before she died, and I didn't know she was going to die, but shortly before she died, I asked her about that box and where those letters were, and she went and got them, and she gave it to me. Wow. And so I have those letters, and through those letters, but also doing more research, I hired a researcher in London who went into the National Archives there and found a secret file that the British were keeping on him and Jill during their trip into the Himalayas. Wow. And they were trying to keep Jill and Baird out of Tibet. Right. That was Those were the days of the great game, right? Those were the, that's exactly right. And they were afraid of a that Baird and Jill uh, might provoke some kind of international incident. But through that file... I was able to find out a lot more about them and about that journey that they took and enabled me to retrace the journey a few years ago Mm -hmm. on assignment for Smithsonian, for a travel magazine, Smithsonian Journeys Quarterly. Were you aware of your grandfather's story before you wrote your book about the Flesciero? I was aware of the story before the book came out, but not before I went on the trip. So here's a guy I never met whose presence in my life was extremely indirect, but who had this fixation or whose sort of singular achievement in his life was having claimed to discover the lost tribe. And, you know, I end up trekking through the land of a so-called lost tribe in the Amazon So, you know, so I, I'm kind of on a quest now to try to understand how this man, in a hidden way, influenced my life, um, unbeknownst to yeah, me. Yeah, you can see exactly where I'm going with this question. I, I found it striking, reading your book, that you start your book talking, really reflecting upon the cost of these expeditions that you've made in your life as a journalist, how amazingly exciting they are, how important they are, and yet, at the same time, how much of a cost they have upon you and upon the people you love. And it just seemed unbelievably striking to me that you have in the story of your grandfather a, a similar kind of arc. Yes, and the thing is, so my my mother had conflicted feelings about her father. On the one hand, this is a man who abandoned her and I think my mother was not a particularly happy woman. Mm-hmm. And I think you could trace a lot of her unhappiness back to the sense of being abandoned, kind of orphaned by the disappearance of her father from yeah. her life. But as I was growing up, you know, I, I sort of began to venture away from home. I went to Appalachia when I was um, a freshman in college for the first time, then spent the summer there going deeper and deeper into, you know, the Appalachian backwoods and meeting farmers and coal miners. And, and then I took a year off from college and went to South America, mm-hmm. went to learn Spanish in Mexico and then headed overland into, uh, and ended up out in the Amazon in Peru. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then became later, um, you know, a journalist covering war and, um, revolution in Central America. And my mother would say to me, you know, and she'd say it in the, with this kind of touch of admiration about her father, 
you have your grandfather's genes. You're doing what he did or what he wanted to do. So there was, you know, she always said that. And this kind of like, so there was like, obviously, this real ambivalence that she had about him. Mm. On the one hand, he had disappeared from her life. On the other, there would have been probably nothing more than she would have liked than to see him again. Wow. Scott Wallace, thank you so much for coming in to talk to me. Thank you. That's it for today. Our music was composed by Zabra. Please rate and review the show if you get the chance. It really does help listeners find the show. And if you want to get in touch, by all means, email me at time to eat the dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.